And what I love to say to my clients is death is not an emergency. You know, sometimes it is, don't get me wrong, but in many cases, it can be a non-emergency, especially once death has occurred. We're allowed to kind of slow down. We hope that we can really help families slow down before death has occurred as well and be present with the experience. Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Well, I am so honored to interview Sarah Hill. Not too long ago, Sarah worked in the corporate sector as a consultant doing large-scale change management work, and then decided to make a very brave decision to pivot and follow her heart and embarked on the path to becoming a death doula. And in my short conversations with Sarah in preparation for this interview, I found myself totally riveted, not just by the work that Sarah does, but by just the graceful way that she brings comfort and ease and life actually, ironically, to this conversation about dying. So thank you so much for being with us, Sarah. Oh, Rachel, thanks for that beautiful introduction. And thanks so much for having me. I want to start with the very basic information of what a death doula does. But before I address that, I can't help but draw attention to the fact that we have a tremendous amount of interest in this topic. And I think that says a lot. And I wanted to ask you what you think about why there's so much interest in this conversation right now? What's happening culturally that so many people are interested in this topic? Well, it's difficult for me to answer for others because I've always had a bit of a bias and orientation towards wanting to talk more about death and dying. But I think, you know, it's hard to ignore the events of 2020 and how that has really brought death to the forefront of our cultural conversation in so many different ways. I think that with COVID-19, unless you were a virologist, it surprised all of us, kind of knocked us all a bit off of center and made us really confront our own mortality in a very profound way. And we saw death at a scale and a magnitude and in great detail in a way that really, I think we haven't seen in quite some time. And it really impacted us at a global level as well. You know, compounding that, we had a very, very public murder of George Floyd that we all had to metabolize. And see and hold. And I think that was just another inciting factor for us that we can't deny that part of the human experience is death. So for those of us who go about living our day, not really thinking about that, which is kind of the way most of us do it, we had nearly an entire year and we're continuing to see the impact of that. It just keeps coming at us, right? So any attempt we're making to kind of extricate ourselves from that, it's really kind of futile. And mm -hmm. people want to talk about what is this experience, this human experience that we're having? And so, yeah, I think that's a really big reason why, at least for now, folks are starting to kind of turn on to the conversation around dying and death. It's harder and harder to ignore, even though as a culture, we've traditionally kept it 
under wraps. Absolutely. And I think for the at home with growing older team too, one of the other things we've been contending with for a while or part of the conversation that was started predating 2020 was around the phenomena of what's often referred to as the silver wave that come 2050, Mm -hmm. 20% of the U.S. population is going to be over the age of 65. And when we look at our medical practitioners, because we've, you know, kind of wrapped death up and handed it over to our medical community in many ways. We're having a bit of a crisis there, right? We're not seeing as many folks specialize in gerontology and palliative care. So how are we going to meet that moment? What are the ways that we can get creative about it? So that's another big component as well. The other thing that I'm seeing too is, and this is a cultural shift and a generational conversation that's starting to happen, is really looking at quality over quantity in a number Mm -hmm. of different ways. Number of different ways we're seeing that kind of conversation take place. And that extends, of course, into looking at if I'm in pursuit of curative measures that may make me ill, am I able to utilize the time that I have that's remaining? And what's the balance of that? And what can I do? Part of that too is the forums that start to emerge that allow those conversations to take place. So you may have heard of something called a death cafe which is an opportunity for people to come together and drink tea and talk about death and dying or death over dinner or the reimagine festival in San Francisco, which is now really a global phenomenon since COVID came about. All of these things together really are part of how we're seeing the curiosity open up conversation. Speaking of the creativity that is dripping into this field and conversation about death For those people who aren't familiar, what is a death doula? What do you do? What's your role? Why do you need to be here? I'll preface it by saying, nobody really knows. Many people don't know. (laughs) I have yet to meet a person who's like, oh yeah, I know what that is. A doula is somebody who companions and bears witness to the experience of the dying. That's what we do. We work with folks who are, in most cases, have been given a terminal diagnosis and they're having to really kind of wrap their heads around what that means for them. So we offer emotional, spiritual, psychological, sometimes even physical support for those who are meeting their dying time. In addition to that, we help people who are kind of in what I call the constellation of care. That can be family members, chosen family as well, friends. It might be aides who are caring for somebody. What we try to do is be containers that are big enough to hold the experience for everybody that's within that frame. So in many ways, we help guide folks through something that is unknown and not familiar. We don't have much of a frame of reference of what to expect or anticipate. Hopefully, we're able to give a little bit of guidance where it's needed, and then also instill in people we serve the confidence to do what they innately know how to do. So that's another element of doula's work. I was recently talking to a friend who lost her mom, and she was lamenting to me that when her mom died, you know, everything went into sort of fast mode. The paramedics came, the body was whisked away, and she didn't know that she could sit with her mom's body and that there was another option besides letting everyone else just sort of take over. Sure. There are some instances, in fairness, the way our social structures are set up, where something may become emergent or be treated as such, in which there's a cascade effect that does happen. But yeah, there is an education component to the work that we do. Many of my clients, when I share with them, you know, you're able to keep your loved one's body with you overnight. They don't have to come right away. Once they get over the initial shock of what would that be like for me, because I think most people haven't even held that possibility, you know, it's just, they don't know. 
So yeah, being able to kind of get folks in the know as quickly as we can is absolutely part of something we hopefully can do. I, I'm so sorry for your friend's experience with her mom. I mean, that that's traumatizing in its own right, making an already difficult experience that much more difficult. And what I love to say to my clients is death is not an emergency. You know, sometimes it is, don't get me wrong. I understand there are instances when you know, there may be components that give it that energy, but in many cases, it can be a non-emergency, especially once death has occurred. We're allowed to kind of slow down. We hope that we can really help families slow down before death has occurred as well and be present with the experience. I love that you're saying it's not an emergency. And I'm also thinking it doesn't need to be secret. Years ago, when I volunteered in various care facilities, the People who died were brought out in covered gurneys in the middle of the night when people were sleeping so that it wouldn't disturb the environment or the other people there. We're starting to see trends too of care facilities and hospitals and other places where the staff will actually even line up as somebody is being taken from the building and pay homage to that person in their life in a new way. We're a far cry from where I hope to see it someday, but we're getting better at it. We're getting better and curious about how we can do it differently. And I think that's the thing when we make it invisible and we pull it back in that way, it harms all of us. It makes something that is a very natural process take on this otherworldly way of being that can be quite scary. You know, death is a big mystery. Some folks think they are pretty clear on what's going to happen when they're there. I don't. I, as a doula, don't. I don't know. But I do believe that there are ways to meet some of that trepidation or fear or not knowing with curiosity that can really level out some of that fear. But anyway, back to what you were saying, Rachel, when we keep it back in the shadows in that way, it just exacerbates the issue and compounds it and makes it more challenging. So many people are familiar with hospice and have seen a loved one in hospice care. How do you fit into the existing model of hospice and how is what you do different? Yeah, that's a good distinction to make. I'm going to just say for the record, hospice is essential. Essential. Whenever I meet a client, and I know other doulas who are of the same mind as I am, if we meet somebody who's not on hospice, we highly encourage them to be on hospice if they're within a six month window based on their physician's prognosis. So hospice is fabulous. It's a wonderful place. You know, it has so many different facets to it too. You have your medical team, which is comprised of a doctor and typically you'll have a case manager, RN and other nurses who will support. So they're really looking at the component of keeping your body in a good place, meaning helping with pain management, monitoring things and making adjustments as they go to make sure that you get the care you need. You have a social worker who's out there advocating for you on your behalf and connecting you to social services and other resources that may be really helpful. Chaplains who can lean in with spiritual guidance and support. You have home health aides who really preserve dignity, dignity affirming, as I like to call it, by keeping you bathed and keeping wound care at the forefront. You also get volunteers and pet therapists, and music therapists, and a lot of other great things. So anyhow, hospice, yes, yay for hospice. What most folks don't understand about hospice, though, is that they can't be there for hours at a time. They have heavy, heavy caseloads. So they'll come in, and they're going to give you their full attention and give you the best care that they can, but within a specified time frame. Many doulas don't really carry that level of a caseload. 
So we're able to kind of get more intimately involved with a family. And I think in that regard, it becomes a kind of win-win for all involved, right? You have a family who has somebody who can help translate some of what hospice is doing, spend more time with you and explain to you what's happening. And in reverse, we're able to communicate back to hospice. Hey, I think we need to tweak this, or could we look at adjusting that to give the family the best care that we can? And that's the one thing I can say about hospice and doulas together is we have a common goal. And that's to really take care of in their parlance patients and in ours clients to make sure a dying person gets the best care that they possibly can. And in that way, we're great authentative support. Is it similar to a birth doula in that you're with the person for hours through the night? Are you tag teaming with somebody else? I assume part of that time is also a lot of caregiver support. That's right. So I want to do a shout out because I have a few doulas that are on the phone right now with me. We've got Lori Goldwyn and Nancy Finkel and Zoe Francesca and Rita Trumbo. And we have some other doulas on there. And I got to say, this is a community effort. No doula can do this work alone. I have Zoe really at the forefront of my mind and my heart right now because we said goodbye to a client of ours just a couple of days ago and they had a large family. <laughs> and so that was a real asset to have both of us there because we could kind of, you know, spread out the container that was us to really meet every person that was in need. But yeah, we do. We can offer round the clock support. We often do that at a time called vigil time. That's what we refer to it as the active dying phase. That can take hours or it can stretch over days. And so having a community of doulas that kind of connect in together and can support one another allows us to be at the bedside actively if that's what the dying person wants and needs and or their constellation of caregivers. And then, yes, giving them respite care is a big critical component of helping them stay whole through that experience and present too. Letting them go do a bit of self-care is something we help with also. When we spoke Last week, you were talking about how you help family members get closer to the experience. Yeah, that happens in two ways. It's both emotionally closer, but also physically closer. A great experience of that is another client that actually Zoe and I had supported at one point in time. So this was a beautiful family, the patriarch of the family. He and his wife were just such a beautiful bonded pair. They had known each other since elementary school. And when Zoe and I met this family, you know, we kind of came in a little bit later in the process, but that was okay. What we noticed were the different ways in which folks were holding things by the time we arrived. His wife was doing a lot of the kind of brass tacks, pragmatic kind of things, you know, just really leaning into, do I have this? Do I have that? Really kind of advancing that element of her personality, which was excellent and it was necessary, but it also was robbing her of an opportunity to stay emotionally connected. The son, who was an adult man, was super struggling, super, super struggling. He couldn't find words. He just seemed not at ease with what was happening. Anyhow, at some point we were just kind of having conversations about things and back to the point of being able to keep somebody body after they've died at home. You know, we spoke to the wife about that possibility and she, nope, I don't need that. That's okay. <laughs> you know, was, that's okay. Cause what we do is do is we provide options and just let folks know what they could do. But anyhow, through one of the conversations we had to just bringing the son back into the frame, he hadn't been talking for a couple hours of this conversation we were having and said nothing. And then just blurted out, dad, can I have your wedding ring when you're gone? Just boom. Okay. That was where he was at. 
come to find out later that he had lost his own wedding ring during a fishing trip months earlier and was without a wedding ring. So anyhow, this man, our client, he really didn't want any fanfare. He didn't want ritual. That was just not what he wanted. And one of the things doulas do is we respect and honor what people ask for. And so we made sure that he didn't have any fanfare or ritual. What we did notice though, is that his wife was a practicing Catholic and she was really yearning for being able to express and connect in with something in a way that was meaningful for her. So during active death, Zoe and I were both there. And I think Zoe recognized a need for the wife to just have a little intervention, little doula intervention. So she asked her to step out of the room along with the family that was present. And she led them in a prayer that she got from an amazing book called Graceful Passages. It moved his wife to tears. She had been so in this mindset of, I got to do this, got to do that, you know, really cerebral, moved her straight into her heart. And the tears came for the first time. She said she hadn't cried. She hadn't been able to go there, but it allowed her to arrive in this moment when his death was imminent and to be open-hearted and to experience it from a different perspective. When he took his last breath, the energy in the room was palpable. I mean, there's nothing like seeing the grief emerge from folks. It's such a human experience, but none of us hardly ever hear grief expressed in that way. But when you hear it, we all know it. It resonates at a very primal level. And people were kind of standing back from the bed. And part of that was the ALS had complicated things. He wasn't able to be touched for the last few months of his life because it put him in excruciating pain. So I think in this case, they were really trying to also honor that boundary for him. But after he had died, Zoe and I invited the family to come closer. And his wife, it was so beautiful, crawled right into bed and she laid her head right on his chest and started to tell stories of how they had met in elementary school and what a wonderful life they had had together and the family that they had made together and just shared all of this beauty. In the meantime, I saw her son and he had gotten close, but found himself perseverating on getting that wedding ring. That's where he focused his energy. And I noticed ah, he may need a little support. So I gently took him. I said, don't you worry, I'm going to get the ring. So I had him go elsewhere and I managed to remove the ring in a non-production way, just a very subtle fashion. And then I went to his mother and I gave her the ring, you know, the man's wife. And I said, I think it's appropriate that you pass along the ring. And so there with their father still present in his own right, the mother took the wedding ring, offered it to her daughter-in-law and said, please take this ring with our love. The daughter then took the ring and remarried her husband (laughs) right there in the room. And they had this intimate moment. I don't think that family thought that they could have that moment. Just to close out on that story, that wife did ask if she could keep her husband's body with her longer, keep him at home. She wasn't ready to send him on. So the funeral home was fantastic. And they said, absolutely. And they showed up the next morning. But it was an entirely different experience than what maybe they had thought they could have, which starts a whole other level of closure and a jumpstart on a grieving process or a differentiated kind of grief process. Mm -hmm. I I have so many of those kinds of stories. First of all, thank you. That's so moving. And just hearing that story and learning about it opens up our minds to something else that's possible. We don't know what's not there, what we're not taught. There's this whole beautiful void. It just takes hearing stories like this and talking about it to change the way that we think about dying. I don't mean to anesthetize 
end of life, you know, dying is gritty, it's hard, it's challenging, no doubt about any of those things, but there's still a beauty in it. You know, we think birth is beautiful. Labor, we know is not pretty. <laughs> the birthing process can be challenging and difficult. I know my son knows, but it's still beautiful, still can be held as kind of our human right. I think the desire to reclaim death in a way is something that we see as rather universal. And we recognize it once we realize it had gone missing. So I'm looking at the time and I have so many burning questions for you. And I'm going to take the liberty. We can't let you go without asking about how your work impacts and fits into the medical aid and dying and mm -hmm. end of life options act. If you can kind of quickly tell people what that even is and mm -hmm. what your role is. And then my second burning question, I want to know how you take care of yourself. Like how does a death doula, you know, get up and brush your teeth and comb your hair and go to work every morning, maybe not every morning, but have this be your work and mm -hmm. then come home to your toddler and to your life and be a functioning human being. So at the end of life option act was something that became legal in the state of California in 2016. We refer to it in industry as medical aid and dying. So the end of life option act is an opportunity for certain patients who've been given a diagnosis and prognosis of six months or left for a terminal illness. And they decide that they would like to take a particular set of medications that will help end their life. We came on a little bit later than other states, for instance, Oregon, they've been at this, I think, 19, 20 years now. People are going to die in a number of different ways. So let's just kind of start there. <laughs> No death is ever the same. Medical aid and dying, it's the same as that as well. In the doula community, doulas are as varied as you can imagine too. So I happen to be a doula that supports the Medical Aid and Dying End of Life Option Act. It's something that I am comfortable with. There are some doulas that may feel differently than I do, and that's okay. I think we need different, different folks for different circumstances and situations. But for doulas who do support medical aid and dying, I think the way in which we show up for that is to allow the people who are seeking this option, kind of the brass tax pragmatic support that goes into having it take place. As you can imagine, the law is fairly prescriptive. We're still trying to contend with how the medical community relates to medical aid and dying. So physicians often aren't allowed to even bring up medical aid and dying as an option that is available to their patients. Typically, the onus is on the patient to somehow become educated about medical aid and dying and then seek it out through a conversation that they're going to have with their physician. So that's one kind of barrier right away where I think many doulas would probably be more comfortable at least allowing that conversation to surface over time. Then the actual requires a verbal request. There's just a lot of legalities and logistics that come into play. The system's not easy to navigate. You need two physicians. You need to have a psychiatric evaluation that determines you're okay to be doing this. There's paperwork involved. There's waiting periods involved, all of those different things. So having somebody who has gone through that process before and kind of guide you through it, that's another big way that doulas are showing up to support and help their clients. Here's the biggest one that we're seeing, at least in the state of California. While there are hospices that are supportive of medical aid and dying, there are oftentimes organizational restrictions around the level of participation, meaning that their physicians may be able to prescribe the medications. They may be able to give you guidance on how to mix these medications. They may be able to tell you 
what must be done to administer these medications, but it will stop when it comes to the day of ingesting those medications. They, by organizational policy in most cases, are not allowed to be on premise where somebody is ingesting the medical aid and dying drugs. What that often does is it leaves the patient slash client, in my case, in a horrible quandary. Emotions are running high. You've made this decision. You want to advance it and put it forward. Oftentimes, your physical capacity to mix those medications on your own is compromised, right? You always have to self-administer legally. That's part of medical aid and dying. But your ability to get everything set up will then fall to your caregivers. Who are your caregivers? Oftentimes, they're your loved ones. Your loved ones don't want to have to be trying to keep their heads straight to take this process into account and figure that all out while simultaneously trying to remain present with you and emotionally available to what's in front of them. I believe that can really add to the trauma of an experience. It doesn't have to happen that way. There are some hospices where they do allow RNs or physicians to be there, but by and large, I would say that we are finding that's often not the case. And so doulas are being brought in at that critical moment to support these folks. And the way that we do that is we actually will prepare everybody through the whole process on the day of ingestion. We'll meet with folks ahead of time to help walk them through the process of getting the qualification that they need. But on the day of, we will show up. We will set things up in a particular way that helps the event go from something that could be rather clinical to something that can, again, feel human and accessible and mark a moment. And we'll do it in a way that makes sense for that family. And we take away the burden of having to mix that medication. We will do that. We know how to do it and we know how to help time things. Cause like I said, there's an order of events that goes along with it. So that the constellation of caregivers can really focus on where they need to be, which is connected with their loved one instead of worrying that they're going to screw something up. The final thing I'm going to say on that front too, in that regard is Lonnie Shabelson, who is a medical aid and dying advocate and doctor. I mean, he's really been at the forefront of this since its inception here in the Bay area. His clinic received a letter from a woman who as a final act of love, wanted to mix the medications for her husband and help space it out. And unfortunately, something didn't go right. And it made for a really difficult experience Mm. for her, something that she's going to now have to hold. So I hear stories like that. And, you know, I'm not one for liking the kind of fear mongering that comes with that, but that didn't have to happen. That was not necessary. So and that way, I think right now, doulas are kind of filling a gap in terms of that David ingestion in particular. Wow. Many of us who know about and support medical aid and dying don't take our thinking far enough to those details to think about who mixes and who administers and what that's going to be like emotionally and everybody in the room. And just to clarify, Rachel, just for legality's sake, the client or patient always has to be able to self-administer and it can be done in various ways because you can drink these medications, but some people don't have the capacity to swallow. They can have a G-tube inserted where it can be injected through a syringe. And there's also the possibility of rectal administration. Protocol can become somewhat challenging for folks to navigate without people who have the experience to support them. You are listening to At Home On Air, We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. 
what's your vision for how you think death doulas are going to impact the experience of dying in the next, let's say, 15 or 25 years? Oh, my goodness. I think my response is surprising even me. I think in my heart of hearts, I'm hoping that in 15, 20 years, I might not be necessary. That's a bold vision, but that's what my heart says. I believe in this work so much. I believe in what I do. I believe in what doulas are trying to advance. And I think what we're all trying to do is support people in coming home into their own innate wisdom around dying and death and to reclaim it for themselves. And I hope that over time, we've normalized the experience enough that we can have these conversations so organically and openly and fluidly that other people are able to arrive in support of one's dying time. And that we just have that community as part of our kind of natural state. That's my ambition for it. I think maybe 15, 20 years, that might be a bit aggressive in a way. You may have heard of a term called concierge care, ways in which we can really personalize care at end of life. And I think doulas really are speaking to that yearning. I hope maybe by 30 years, we won't need us. (laughs) Better take good care of yourself in those 30 years. Okay, Andrea, take it away. There's lots of questions. Well, one question from Laura Burnett is... When is the right time to hire a doula? Yeah, that's a great question. It's really, I think, whenever you find yourself really wanting to talk about the experience of dying and death. So does that mean at the point in which you have been given a terminal diagnosis? For many people, yes. That's really when they want to lean into that conversation. The more that you engage doulas upstream, the more we can do. I mean, the truth of the matter is, like in that case that I shared with that family that Zoe and I were supporting, we had maybe 10 days of time with the family in advance of the death. So we can still still do amazing work in tight timeframes. That's something that we get accustomed to doing, but the more time we have upstream, the more we can really lean into the experience with you and provide a kind of varying degree of support. For most doulas, when we meet somebody, if the need for us isn't as great at one point, that's okay. We may only meet once every couple of weeks, once a month or whatever that cadence is going to look like, but then that's going to change as the need changes. So there's really no harm in reaching out and starting conversations with us early upstream. This doesn't happen for me personally, but other doulas I know have been contacted just in terms of going through conversations around advanced planning before they even had a terminal diagnosis anywhere in view, but just to help me understand what that looks like. Most doulas support that process as being more of an engaged values alignment exercise rather than just, okay, here's some more paperwork for me to fill out. It's really like, no, 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 no. Let's stop and think, what do you want? What's essential to you? And that's a process that we definitely can support too. So yeah, I think whenever you feel it's a good time to talk to a doula, just reach out and talk to one of us. Another question from Susie, is there a ritual that you follow? Oh, that's a great question, Susie. You know what? That's part of what's fun about my work. Rituals are as varied as the people that we serve. I think if any doula comes to this work with all the answers in mind, we're missing a great opportunity. Part of what's so wonderful about meeting families upstream and the person who's dying, obviously, but their whole constellation of care, if you will, is you get to really know a person so that when you do engage ritual, it can be personalized in a way that's meaningful rather than something that feels out of touch with that that person and doesn't get the feel of the cloth of who they are and eventually who they were 
we do something called legacy work. We go through a process too of life review. Tell us about your life. What has been meaningful? What have been the kind of punctuation points where things were really, really great or really, really low? And what did you learn? How do you hold your life in view? Share that with me so I can know that. And then what are you going to leave when you're no longer here? What do you leave behind? Mm -hmm. And who do you leave it to? So when we start to get curious about those things, that helps us to really define a different way of holding space for that person through the act of dying phase and then also through memorial. Susie and Sarah have asked a variation on the same question. Who can afford the services of a doula? Who refers you to clients? How much does it cost? How do doulas charge, especially when you're working with other doulas? So I'll take that from the perspective of me. And then other doulas may kind of vary from there. I know having worked with the East Bay End of Life Doula Network for a while, when we all formed together a couple of years back, we had very meaningful discussions around, okay, what do we do? Because we were kind of charting our own course and we needed approximations to come from somewhere. So we did look at what do birth doulas do? What do other kind of care type folks do? You know, is this hourly? Are there package rates? How do we do it? And so I think we came up with a bit of an amalgamation of things. So within the network itself, we had set a particular range and it was localized to the Bay Area specifically. And that range was up to each individual practitioner to decide what felt right for them based on their experience and so on and so forth. So we would do an hourly rate. Typically that would range between $75 and $150, but there were package rates that were also available too over time. And the other thing that I really want to mention, at least with all the doulas that I know, is a fair assessment of need matters here. I don't know a doula who doesn't have a sliding scale. I don't know a doula who would turn somebody away because they couldn't afford the doula services. There's Mm -hmm. always a way to make it work. I know I have done that. I know other doulas definitely who do that as well. Package rates, and I know that's kind of a crass sounding term for for this work, but it is what it is. When we do sit vigil, we might have a cap on what that looks like so that we aren't you know, accumulating hours at a rate that's really unsustainable. And then even flat rates too for certain experiences. If he wants to come in and do one thing, you know, we can kind of negotiate that too. It's been hard for us from the standpoint of, I think people see the work that we do to be most similar to the work that clergy does, which clearly that didn't have a price tag attached to it. But, you know, the reality of it is this is work that, that folks do. So we tried to come up with a rate that we felt was reasonable. I'm going to give you two questions now. One is kind of nuts and bolts and the other is a little less so. One question from Donna and from Janet had to do with training. What kind of training do you have? Is there a certificate? The next question is, what's a doula's role post-death, like supporting family and friends? And how does the role of a doula differ from other people in helping professions in terms of processing grief and stuff like that? Okay. Training and certification. So I guess I'll start by saying that there are a couple different options for training. Most of the doulas that I know went through training with a group called the International End-of-Life Doula Association, and they've been around for quite a number of years at this point, I think over a decade. Enelda is what they're called in short. And their model was probably one of the first ones to hit the scene, but there are other groups that are also doing this too. They do accreditation and credentialing programs as part of their training as add-ons to that as kind of continuous learning. So I think 
There are no regulations, though, that require specific credentialing or certification at this stage. That's something that different organizations, in particular in ELDA, are really trying to advance. But right now, there are no restrictions on that. The one thing that Henry, who started in ELDA, had said that I thought was really, really great is right now the need is so great that it's more important that we have mm-hmm. folks getting out there and just being present. So the next question that I said was, can you talk about the, the role that the doula plays for the family and friends, you know, once somebody has died, what about the role of the doula in terms of processing grief? How is it different from other professionals? There are a few different things. Like I said a bit earlier, the one advantage to the doula is that we're this true thread, if you will. If we meet a family upstream here and we've kind of gone through this process with them, there's a degree of connection and comfort that comes. Our clients, when they die, their constellation of caregivers oftentimes want to stay connected in some capacity. And that might show up in different ways. That might show up in just being able to stay connected by being present to them in their grief journey. It may mean that some folks want us to actively participate in the memorial in some way. There are doulas who actually work as celebrants as well, who do home funerals and celebrancy as part of formal training. So there are a number of ways in which we might show up. And how does that vary from others? If you have people who on the psychotherapy mode, working with grief and bereavement and so on and so forth, they have a different level of training that they're able to bring to bear. But I know a lot of doulas, including myself, who can lean in in a very active way to someone's grieving experience by bringing the doula model to that through through ritual, through allowing there to be a process by which people can metabolize their griefs that may be quite different than, say, a psychotherapeutic CBT model. We're all about systems of care and support in whatever way it makes the most sense. So oftentimes you'll see a bit of redundancy or maybe overlap, but perhaps it's just a different angle on a kind of prism, if you will. So hopefully it's complementary, I guess, is the bottom line there. There's one really brief question remaining. Rena asks, do you only work with terminally ill? You've kind of addressed this already, talking about when to hire a death doula. But For myself personally, I actually have clients who are not the terminally ill person. I have people who have someone in their life who is terminally ill, and they don't necessarily need support for whatever reason. They are going a different path. But their loved one does want somebody to go through that journey with them. So I have actually had quite a few clients who were not the dying person themselves, if that's helpful at all. And then from the bereavement and grief component too, I've walked a few clients home on that front too. So again, not the person who was dying. If people have further questions or want to find out more about the work or the East Bay Doula Network, how can they reach you? So my website is eastbaydoulaforthedying.com. And then the network too that I really kind of grew out of is the East Bay End of Life Doula Network. Endoflifedoulas.care. And then Inelda, the organization I mentioned earlier, they have a directory of doulas where you can type in your zip code in their directory and they will route you to Inelda trained doulas that are close to you. That's another great resource. I can't thank you enough, Sarah. This has been so eye-opening and so moving. I feel super grateful that I've learned so much from you personally, and I know that we all have. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. 
We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.